0: Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Friday this week, a little after 11 a.m. on January 12th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and we're pretty sure today that things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today, we are joined by Sarah Cliff of Vox. Hi, Julie. Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hello, ladies. And Margot Sanger-Katz of The New York Times. Good morning. And after our discussion today, we'll hear an interview I did yesterday with Princeton professor Paul Starr. He's co-editor and co-founder of the liberal journal, The American Prospect, the author of the seminal health history book, The Social Transformation of American Medicine, which just got a new update. He's also a longtime commentator and advocate for new ways to cover more people with health insurance. And for balance, next week at our live show, we'll have the Republican point of view with former Medicare and Medicaid head Tom Scully, who worked for both President Bush's. More on that later. First this week, lots of news. So yesterday, the Trump administration officially announced it would allow states to impose work requirements as a condition of receiving Medicaid for large segments of the population. This is a sea change for the program. So who wants to talk about what it could mean?
1: So the idea is that... Uh, the Trump administration wants to allow states to condition Medicaid benefits for many adult beneficiaries on their ability to either work a certain number of hours a week or participate in what they're calling community engagement activities. So those might be things like looking for a job, going to school, caring for a child, uh, volunteering. And this is, it seems like a pretty much modeled on work requirements that were tested in welfare uh, in the 1990s. And, well, earlier than well, that. Well, yeah, they were tested earlier than earlier that, than and that. then became a standard part of the TANF program during welfare reform in the late 1990s. So, if you want to get TANF benefits, which is like cash welfare assistance, if you're a, a mom of young kids. Uh, You have to do something similar to this. You have to demonstrate that you're working or that you're trying to get a job uh, in order to get your benefits. But Medicaid is a little bit different. And I think another important difference between Medicaid and TANF is that the changes to welfare were done through legislation where Congress actually said, we're changing the purpose of this program so that promoting work is an important part of the program, and we're going to create the system around it, and we're going to give states funding to administer these programs. What the Trump administration did this week is they basically said to states, we think that work requirements are consistent with the existing purpose of the Medicaid statute. So there's no new legislation here that says Medicaid is about promoting work. The Trump administration is trying to say that promoting work is consistent with the existing purpose of Medicaid, which is to promote health. And so they put out this memo this week in which they tried to make the argument that promoting work will promote health. And I think that's quite a difficult legal argument for them to make. There are, of course, other arguments for work requirements in Medicaid that many conservatives make, but because of the particular process that the Trump administration is using, they really have to stick to this thread, which I think is kind of a tricky thread.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there, there have already been lawsuits threatened. I assume that, you know, this, this has been something that um, other states have asked for and have been rejected by administrations previously. Uh, and I guess today, I, you know, I was saying that, that by, the, by the time you hear this, um, I guess we're expecting Kentucky to announce that it will be the first state to have had one of these waivers approved, Right probably right after we finish
2: here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's an interesting. There are about 10 states that have waivers pending with the Trump administration. And these are requests that aren't new. They're ones that were made during the Obama administration that the Obama administration took a very clear line on. They said this isn't part of Medicaid, this is not how the program works, and rejected them. One of the kind of interesting threads running through this is the current Medicare administrator, Seema Verma, who is someone who has really promoted this sort of idea before she joined the Trump administration. She was a consultant in Indiana and worked with Indiana and Kentucky, I believe, and a lot of other states to write waiver requests. Now, it's not a shock that she is the person approving the waiver request and is likely to say yes to them. But it's unclear, I think, because of this threat of lawsuits like you mentioned, Julie. I'm not sure if we'll actually see this tested. I think we're in a bit of uncharted territory at this point. And there is everything with federal health policy moves pretty slowly. So even an approval today, that's the beginning of a very long process. And it's not clear at this point whether that process will result in Kentucky having a work requirement or not.
3: I think it's likely that it will have a work requirement. I don't know how smoothly it gets enacted. I mean, a number of the states already have um, the mechanisms that are similar, both because of welfare and for food stamps. So the process of – it's sort of going to be cumbersome. I mean, how do you track someone's volunteer hours and things like that? I mean, I think there are a lot of practical issues. Um, I think a couple – I think um, it's really – a historic break, right? Medicaid is an entitlement health program. TANF, the welfare program, is about economic productivity, survival. It's about income. This is about health. And the, the traditional advocates, the groups that are probably just about to sue, I mean, they really ideologically, morally object to conditioning health care, on economic activity, it's it's a fundamental break. On the other hand, because it's you know we are in a very very partisan. I mean, we've all noticed we're in a very very partisan era. I mean, things do get lost in the shuffle. I mean, there are there are a lot of exceptions that um, it, it does not have to be a job. It has to be. It can be job training. It can be education. It can it can be volunteer work. There are a lot of exemptions. Disabled people. Um, if you're the sole support, the the child care provider of a young child, um, all that. All, all that gets um, lost because there is this, I mean, in addition to the partisan divide, there really is a, fil- a really deep philosophical divide about whether this is about health care or whether this is about economic activity. And people people get very upset about it.
0: Well, and I, I think the big concern, I mean, first of all, we should point out that, that a lot of research has been done on this, and the vast majority of people on Medicaid... Uh, who are either, able-bodied. who right. are Well, I would say in, in right. general, yeah. wo- yes, who are able-bodied, work... Or they are uh, a caregiver, or they are themselves too sick to work, and then there's this concern about you know uh, uh, people who have opioid mm-hmm. uh, dependency who wouldn't might not be able to get a job because they couldn't pass a drug test because they have an opioid dependency, and but if they lose their Medicaid, they can't get treatment. There so, is
3: there is language about that in the letter yesterday from SEMA Verma that. Um, you know, it's a little vague at this point because that was a guidance letter that, you know, if you're in drug treatment, that counts as a work activity. But, you know, getting off of drugs is a very complicated process. It does not go smoothly. It takes multiple
1: attempts. Um, they are waiting lists. And it also sort of silent on what happens to people who may be waiting, waiting to get lists into treatment. Waiting lists for treatment.
3: I mean, they're, and drug testing. I mean, it's really – I mean, they did – Explicitly mention it. They didn't answer all the questions that all of us have asked about and written about it. It's very complicated. I mean, Medicaid. If you take away their Medicaid, they're never going to get treated. I mean, that's their—that's the way that they get treated. But um, that's one of many, you know, many things that we'll have to see. I mean, the, the governor of Kentucky has said in the past that he wanted to come up with some kind of a policy, but I have no idea what it's going to look like for the.
1: That's a very hard hit state. I wrote an article about this yesterday and I got a lot of comments, particularly on Twitter, but some emails, too, about people basically saying, look, it's not fair. I work really hard for my health benefits that come with my job and they're expensive. They have a high deductible and other things like it's reasonable to ask low income people to make some kind of contribution towards their health benefits, too. And it really reminded me, Sarah, of your work that you did in Kentucky, sort of talking to people who were kind of on that borderline between exchange or employer coverage and Medicaid. But I, I mean, I do think that there is a reasonable amount of sort of resentment and unfairness that people feel because healthcare is so expensive and hard to access, even for working middle class people.
2: And because there's this very um, clear, bright line between who gets Medicaid and who has to go on the marketplace and possibly pay significant premiums and have a significant deductible or who's an employer-sponsored coverage. That was something that really came through loud and clear in the reporting that I've done in Kentucky is there is a sense from a lot of people I talk to who are on the marketplace, who have deductibles, that these people are just freeloading, that they're getting something for free, that they are abusing are the benefit. Um, There's one interview that stuck with me. I interviewed this woman named Ruby, who's on the marketplaces, and she wanted to tell me about it. she used to be a school secretary. And at the school, each year they would do this giveaway drive. For, um, for low-income kids there, and they would get free gifts. And she said some of them would get TVs. And she said, I can't afford to buy my kids a TV. Why do those kids whose parents don't work, why do they get a TV? Um, and it really captured a lot of the sentiment that seems to be pretty pervasive. And one of the other things I, I find kind of interesting about work requirements in my reporting, a few months ago I partnered with um, – Undum, this research um, firm, to do some focus groups. And one of the ones we did was with Medicaid enrollees about Medicaid work requirements. It got a shockingly positive response, which I wasn't ready for. Now, most of them already did work, but even those who didn't work, they felt like Medicaid, they, they felt that judgment on that side. They felt like these people think, I'm lazy and I'm getting this for free. And if there was a work requirement, I would be more respected and people would have a higher view of me. Like, I don't know if that's true. But that was something I was a little bit surprised to hear from some Medicaid enrollees. This was in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area, who thought, even at the doctor's office, that they would be thought of differently if people knew quite clearly that they worked.
3: Right. But as Julie pointed out, they mostly do. Yes. So um, if you look at the bureau, the the, the government workplace numbers, the, the percentage between... of. of the, med- the percentage of people on Medicaid working is very, very similar. It's like two or three points or four points lower than the popular, working age population as a whole. So most of, I mean, there's this perception. I mean, I think it sort of goes back to the Reagan era and welfare queens, you know. There's this perception of that people on government benefits are lazy bums, and they're not. The Medicaid population is kids, parents, disabled people. The working poor; some of them are working, um, and the elderly. The elderly. I mean, the, the biggest expense is the people in nursing homes and and uh, mental illness. I mean, I mentioned disability, but that's that's part of that. So it's not like these are all you know lazy bums, and but it's depicted that way and it's talked that way. And, is, and as and Sarah said, it's internalized. Well, but the reality is, that many of these people are already working.
1: One I've, aspect of this that I think has sort of been under discussed, and it was really just a paragraph low down in the guidance, is just what an administrative hurdle mm-hmm. this is going to be for That's states That's exactly to implement. what I was just going to so, say. So I spent a lot of the last week talking to people who study TANF and who study the implementation of the work requirements and the kind of follow-up research of the work requirements in welfare programs. Like, how did they work? What did they mean? And one thing that really stuck with me is someone sort of walked me through how they work. So if you go to sign up for welfare you have like an intake interview with a caseworker that sometimes can run an hour and a half long. Part of what they're doing is they're trying to figure out whether you're eligible for the work requirement. Do you qualify for one of these exceptions? And that's actually like, if you think about it, it's an incredibly kind of personal interview. It depends a lot on details. It depends a lot on the judgment of that person. Are you in fact medically frail enough that you should get away with it? Are you in fact the primary caregiver for someone? Sometimes people have problems that are kind of like embarrassing. They don't necessarily want to tell the caseworker. So there is some kind of false, positive, where people become eligible for the requirement, even though like technically they should get an exception. Then once you get into the category of person who's eligible for the work requirement, even if you're working, you have to prove that. And so there's a lot of paperwork you have to do, essentially, where you're bringing in time cards, where you're, uh, you know, providing evidence that you've gone to various activities. And the state has to monitor that, make sure you remain in compliance. You know, you're supposed to work a certain number of hours every week. They also, you know, at least potentially have to provide you with these alternative activities. So if the state's going to provide you with job training or with job banks where you go in person and apply for jobs. If the state is going to provide people with community service opportunities, which are not always plentiful for low-income people who are out of work, if you think about people who have criminal records, for example, which is a large category of low-income men who are not working, those people aren't going to be able to necessarily just go to the nearest soup kitchen and get a volunteer job on their own. So the state has to provide all of those services. And a lot of states in TANF do that. They've built a lot of infrastructure around job training, around job matching, around community service opportunities. But TANF is a really small program compared to Medicaid. And the percentage of people who uh, drop out of TANF as a result of all of this burden is relatively high. And I think there's a reason to expect that in Medicaid it would be lower. Because if you're a working person and you really need that health insurance because you can't get it through your job, you're much more likely actually to go through all of the hoops. Whereas if you're someone who is unemployed and needs income support, but you're basically employable, you may decide, you know what, I can do my own job search. I don't need to go through all of this difficulty in order to get help with my job search. And so those people kind of go away from TANF, and they may stick to Medicaid.
3: Or the opposite, though. I mean, we I don't know what the opposite word is from wood. You know, we talk about the woodwork, you know, that people yeah. come out of the woodwork <laughs> and sign up for Medicaid when they're because of the ACA and the publicity about getting covered. Uh, but there may be the the D-word. <laughs> is, is there a word? The, the, the <laughs> And you go back into, back the, word, into yeah. the woods. Ba- basically <laughs> in disincentive. If you're Medicaid-eligible or you think you're Medicaid-eligible, and and I haven't seen any data on this because we haven't had work requirements before. But if if you if you think well I could go get Medicaid oh no I'm unemployed I can't go get Medicaid maybe you aren't right. required mm-hmm. to have a job maybe you don't know that you could do community service maybe you have a medical condition that you wouldn't in fact qualify for the work requirement. What we don't know and it will be hard to measure is what is that onward work you know how many people are not going to try to get Medicaid this is a deterrent
1: and they won't even ask yeah now if you think about it. Not from the perspective of the states, but from the perspective of the beneficiary Well, that's the, the state benefit- too. If they want to spend less money, you have, you know. You know. It, I think that there is a, a very strong body of evidence that the higher the administrative hurdles are to enroll in Medicaid, we know this from things states did in the past, the fewer people are going to sign up. And I think that's what a lot of advocates are really worried was, about <laughs> is that this these policies instead of promoting work and promoting health and the sort of salutary values that the Trump administration talks about, in fact, are actually going to be used by states and have the effect of depressing enrollment in Medicaid among people who would be eligible and who could benefit from health insurance.
3: Um, It'll be interesting to watch Maine because the governor's term limited. And Maine is, well, I believe Maine is one of the states that has Yeah, Maine a, is
1: pending. And
3: the rest of the state, other than the governor, doesn't
0: necessarily want it. So we'll we'll see <laughs> we'll what see happens in Maine. All right. Well, let's talk about CHIP. We have another week without a long-term renewal for the Children's Health Insurance Program. It looks like even though Congress thought it was extending CHIP funding uh, back in December through the end of March, there are some states that might run out sooner. So, And then we've had this sort of surprise from the Congressional Budget Office office and says, by the way, we not only have can stop fighting about how much CHIP would cost, turns out if renewing CHIP would save money. So where are we, CHIP? Sarah? <laughs> we
2: are in a very unclear position. And so we are, I believe, 104 days without CHIP funding, if I'm getting my math exactly right. And some interesting developments. So we had this short-term fix that I don't know where Congress quite got their numbers from, but they just said would last till March. And then The Trump administration reached out to states, talked about their funding situation, and they said, no, actually, some states might start to run out January 19th, otherwise known as a week from today, um, which is very, very soon. The next short-term spending bill also. I think it's actually a little bit less (laughs) clear
1: than that, what they said. I think they were asked whether the funding would last passed this next funding bill, mm-hmm. and they said they couldn't be sure. Sure. Yes. Yeah, but they're not going to make it to March. They're going to, you know, yes. there's states that are, I mean, yes. whether
3: it's the 19th or the 21st or whatever, I mean, there are states that are going to run out in a couple of weeks.
2: So the yeah. other development, which has been kind of fascinating, is the series of CBO reports that keep reducing the price tag of extending CHIP. So one of the things CBO has done is they've redone their baseline because of the tax bill, which repealed the individual mandate, will likely drive up the cost of health insurance in the marketplaces that has an effect on CHIP because the expectation is if CHIP ends, a number of these kids would transition to the marketplace and the government would subsidize their coverage there. And essentially what the CBO is saying is it's much more expensive to subsidize these kids' coverage in the marketplace than it is to keep the current program running. So first we saw a report um, at the end of last week that found extending CHIP for five years would cost $800 million, which is Pennies in the federal budget and down and from, about, a, about a tenth, right? yes, a one. tenth of where we were before the individual mandate repeal. So yeah, so it went on sale. Yes, it went on sale, and then on Thursday it went on. Um, I don't even sale. know what you call it. <laughs> rebate. Um, we get a rebate. You get a rebate. So, a report requested by um, a House Democrat, Frank Pallone, it found. That extending CHIP for 10 years actually saves the government $6 billion because the effects get bigger and bigger each year. So you get to this point where the government is actually saving money. And this raises an interesting question. The big fight in CHIP has been how do we pay for it? And now it's like, well, what if you don't have to pay for it? What if you could actually pay for something else by extending
0: <laughs> CHIP? The, the Cadillac um, tax repeal. Where, where this, <laughs> not that It's not that much money.
2: Where this goes isn't totally clear. I've been talking—I you know, talked to Representative Pillow, and I've been talking to folks, um, Democrats on the Senate Finance Committee, who seem like they're inclined at this point to start pushing for a fix that's longer, a fix that actually saves money and gets rid of this whole pay-for fight. I haven't heard as much from Republicans about
1: some talk. what some they serious. want to do, but the House is looking,
2: I yeah. think, at six years. So it seems like a no-brainer at this point if you can avoid 9 million kids losing health insurance and save money or not spend money, but Congress doesn't always
1: take up no brainers, so we'll see where things go probably next week. It's also like a little preview of, uh, like— some fun we're all going to have with the CBO in the coming months and years, like the individual mandate going away. It's like a first grade reader, fun with the CBO. <laughs> <Dick> <laughs> Not everyone change, enjoys right? the CBO as much as, much as, as I, I do.
0: <laughs> I like the CBO too.
1: But, it, it didn't uh, exist when I was there. But, it. you know, it's a big policy change. I and mean, we've talked about it a lot on the mm-hmm. podcast, but I think in the public awareness it sort of like got – forgotten in the because the tax bill itself had made so many other important and newsworthy changes. But the fact that the individual mandate is going to go away is going to have all of these ripple effects throughout the rest of the health care system. And it's going to affect the costliness of different public programs. And this is sort of the first glimpse of that. There's also another dynamic, which is the retirement of
3: Senator Hatch, who, uh, you mm-hmm. know, as he reminds us very frequently, is one of the founders of CHIP there's a legacy issue here. On one hand, they can't get the bills paid through the end of the month. On the other hand, there is some serious conversation bubbling up just last night about doing ten years in the Senate. It is not a it is not a done deal. I would you know it's not going. There, there's a great irony is after the war you know this complete disastrous you know, week-to-week mess that they've been doing for, what, however many days, Sarah, count 100, 104. That they could end up with, you know, a six- or ten-year. Right. So, oh, no. Although the authorization runs out. They still have to come back and do that in a couple of years. But there is some talk about doing this fast. I don't think – they can't get it done by the 19th. It'll probably be a short – there'll probably be one more short fix. Um, but you could see a six-year or possibly even a ten-year. Ten years ten year much harder in the House. I agree. But
0: We're also starting to hear concerns from community health centers because that funding has been tied. And right. as far as I know, the community health centers are no are not free. They don't cost as much as chip. No, but it's they also haven't as been
3: as much of a sticking point. the the the, the pay for fight was well, the pay for fight is gone. There's nothing to pay for. Well, but no, they still have to pay for the community health right. centers. Well, they did well, that you with it. The six
2: million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the question: centers. Is is that enough? So, I don't know so, if they
3: line up. But the, you can do whatever you want. You know, I, I think there's sort of somewhat an ironic ending that Chip may come out after this incredible
0: mess, better than anyone thought, but we're, not, we're so not there yet. Well, we should point out that through all these ac- busy activities at the Department of Health and Human Services, there is still no uh, permanent secretary. The Senate Finance Committee finally held its confirmation hearing for uh, Alex Azar, who's a-, a former deputy secretary and general counsel, um, and more recently in- an Eli Lilly executive. Um, the finance is the panel that votes on this, so there was a hearing back in November, but that was the HELP committee, and they just get a courtesy hearing. So Azar got some beating about the head and shoulders, both from, Republic- from Democrats and Republicans, about drug prices since he's been a, a, uh, a drug executive. But it looks at this point like there's nothing that would stand in the way of a pretty ki- quick confirmation. Am I missing anything here?
1: No, I think there are two signs that he's looking pretty good, at least on a finance vote. Uh, one is that some Democrats have said that they will vote for him. And I also think... I think that the fact that the work requirements announcement has come this week is another sign that the administration is pretty confident that they can get Azar through, because I just think you would not want to throw another controversial piece of health policy into the mix if you were worried it was going to be close.
0: Yeah, there was actually a lot of a, a lot of talk early in the week that it wouldn't happen this week because of the Azar nomination. So I, I think you're probably right. The fact that they went ahead and did it suggests that they don't think that there's any problem.
3: I think we're getting into state of the state speeches from governors, and that's also part of the dynamic. Yeah. Here.
1: <laughs> I think and state budgets—you uh, know what's happening.
0: A they're lot
3: in of,
1: that. A few state of the state speeches have already happened, and we've seen, in addition to the ten states that have asked for work requirements, there are a bunch
0: more governors who said that they're going to. Right. Um, we're going to stop now and play our interview with Princeton's Paul Starr. We'll be back afterwards to do our extra credits. Paul Starr, welcome to What the Health, and thank you very much for doing this.
4: It's a delight to be here, Julie.
0: So we've spent the day at a meeting to talk about what Democrats might do to expand health care when they're back in power in Washington. Why is that more important or as important as defending what Republicans are trying to do right now to make health care harder for people to get?
4: Well, this is a good time for people to look ahead and to think about what uh, the alternatives might be if in 2021, there's a Democratic president, and Democratic Congress, you don't want to have to think about that at the last minute. You don't want to have to come up with uh, ideas and then discover that they're fiscally impossible. And uh, we need a, a broader menu of alternatives. So undoubtedly, Bernie Sanders and the single-payer people have gotten the debate started. Uh, but I don't think that Democrats should lock themselves into decisions now uh, and then perhaps find themselves in a position where they can't actually carry through on promises that they've made. That is effectively what happened to the Republicans with their repeal and replace. So we need to look at a whole variety of different alternatives. And this conference was aimed at expanding the menu and taking a look at these different options.
0: You write that it's unlikely that the next Democratic president, whoever he or she may be, will make health care a top priority. Why is that?
4: So my skepticism arises from what happened with the last two Democratic presidents, uh, both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, uh, made health care a top priority early in their administrations. Bill Clinton failed with the Health Security Act. Barack Obama did pass uh, the Affordable Care Act. But both of them paid a very large uh, penalty at the first midterm elections. Health care is a difficult issue. And um, I I think the next Democratic president, whoever he or she may be, will have to be very careful and will need to think not just about what they can accomplish in the first two years, but how to create a productive path over a full four-year term. And so I think it's important to try to come up with ideas that can build support over time and that don't risk all political capital on one big thing.
0: One of the things I was really struck by is is how you've sort of gone through the fact that most of the major achievements that that healthcare advocates think of as achievements, you know, uh, federal healthcare uh, advances were actually sort of uh, rebound issues. <laughs> they were not. Right. There were none of them necessarily what people started out to want to do.
4: mm mm-hmm. Yeah. If you go through the history, the Medicare and Medicaid legislation of 1965 was not what healthcare reformers originally wanted to do. They wanted a universal program going back now to the period just before World War I. And then again, during the 1930s, during uh, Franklin Roosevelt's administration, and uh, Harry Truman um, called for national health insurance. Those efforts failed. And it was only afterward in the 50s that um, some people regrouped and said, well, what can we get accomplished? And they came up with what Uh, eventually evolved into Medicare. Medicaid got attached to that. And then right after the enactment of Medicare and Medicaid, Ted Kennedy and a number of others once again called for a universal national health insurance program, what would be called today single-payer. We came very close to something like that in the early 1970s under Richard Nixon, oddly enough. Uh, But that moment was lost. And then under Carter and Reagan, The whole idea of national health insurance really fell off the national agenda. But there was another rebound. This time, the rebound came from within the Congress. Henry Waxman, congressman from California, played a big role in this in incrementally expanding Medicaid and turning it into a much more significant uh, program than it had been. Then third time around under Bill Clinton, an effort I was part of, there was an effort again to pass a big universal program that failed years afterward. Uh, people came up with rebound approaches, the Children's Health Insurance Program in 1997. That's an example of a rebound strategy. And the Affordable Care Act in 2010 was in part based on lessons learned from the failure of the Clinton plan. So in each case, uh, there have been grand aspirations and chastened uh, reformers who've had to come back and think about what could be done given the tremendous political constraints of the american system.
0: So uh, the the democratic idea of the moment uh, is medicare for all or single payer or as as we're being told people like medicare for all better than they like single payer. But but medicare for all expanding medicare to everyone is not really the only way to to move forward on either cost or
4: coverage is it? No. So we, we had a number of different uh, alternatives uh, discussed today. Some of them involved expanding Medicare. Some of them involved expanding Medicaid. Some building on the Affordable Care Act. And th- that's the debate we, we need to have, looking at this array of alternatives. Now, I agree with the advocates of Medicare for All that the Medicare program is the strongest, most popular, most legitimate uh, program that we have uh, in health care, and that we should be looking at ways to expand it. Uh, I'm very wary, however, of the idea of trying in one fell swoop to turn that into a program for everybody. Um, There are many people who have coverage today from their employer. They're satisfied with it. There are many veterans who, who don't want to pay extra taxes because they have care from the VA. There are a lot of people who would be made very nervous by the tax increases that would be required by creating a single-payer program. Uh, So I I think we have to look at other ways of doing it. And so what I've suggested, two different ideas. One is what I call midlife Medicare. It's a way of opening up Medicare to people from ages 50 to 64. These would be people who don't have employer-provided insurance. And really, if you're in your late 50s and you've just lost your job and you've had employer-provided insurance your whole working life, you may not really have much of an opportunity to get a good job with that kind of coverage again. These people who are in that period, before they're eligible for Medicare, they are some of the most financially stressed Americans uh, today. And um, opening up Medicare for them, you know, in effect, a kind of early eligibility for Medicare – would I think be uh, a terrific step. It's not single-payer. It's not a huge program, but it it could be a very important program. And it also has benefits, I should emphasize, for people under age 50. Because if you pull these people out of the individual marketplace, this group from the age of 50 to 64, there are a lot of the high costs that raise premiums in the marketplace. Um, So you take them out, cover them through Medicare, um, Medicare is very cost effective. Um, we can I think, both address the needs of that particular group and I think take some of the load off the premiums in the individual market
0: so it would make premiums lower for everybody yes. else who's now left yeah. in the individual market yeah,
4: yeah, so that is so and then the related idea this is the the other part of the proposal um. Uh, is uh, to use Medicare rates for out-of-network coverage and private insurance. So under Medicare, we have both public Medicare and we have private so-called Medicare Advantage plans. So today when people enroll in Medicare, they have a choice, go to public Medicare or one of these Medicare Advantage plans. Now, one of the reasons that Medicare Advantage plans can compete with Medicare is that they actually also use Medicare rates, Medicare prices, to pay doctors and hospitals. And in particular, those rates apply to the out-of-network providers. And that puts a constraint on what providers can demand who want to be part of the network. And it's a very effective way of controlling costs. I'd like to see that whole idea extended beyond Medicare. We could use those Medicare rates to constrain prices, to limit prices for other kinds of insurance. Now, this has particularly come up in relation to the Affordable Care Act's marketplaces. You know, in some parts of the country, we've seen very high premium increases in recent years, last two years. This is particularly the case in areas where there's only one insurer or maybe two insurers and where there are really monopoly providers. They have, these providers and insurers have tremendous pricing power they've jacked up prices. The result is these very high premiums. Using Medicare rates is one way to make those premiums cheaper in the marketplaces. So I think this is something else that we need to consider.
0: And. Then- probably have to have long conversations with the providers about because uh, I imagine they won't like the idea of, of being uh, held to Medicare prices, which are largely lower than commercial prices. Well,
4: that's right. And I think there might be a negotiation over whether we're talking about Medicare itself or Medicare plus 10% or something like that. That's, that's a political negotiation.
0: Someone today described the perfect health proposal as simple, sustainable, both politically and financially, and not scary. How accurate is that? And which of those do you think is the most important? Now, having been through this a few times.
4: If we talk about extending Medicare, I think that's something people can understand. The Medicare program itself, if you get inside the program, it's a complicated program. But the idea of extending Medicare is one that's not hard to understand. People are familiar with Medicare. So I don't think that's a complicated idea, even though it, it involves all the complexities of Medicare. And I don't think that's a scary idea either, because Medicare is a familiar program for most people. So I think things become complicated and scary when you're talking about something that's entirely new, that people have no acquaintance with. It's hard for them to figure out. But I think if you work with what's familiar and Medicare is familiar, you're on a stronger foundation. A lot of
0: health advocates are depressed, I, I guess is the right word right now. There are there are a lot of attacks on the Affordable Care Act and on other parts of the, the health care system. Um, as, as, as a progressive, are you uh, more optimistic right now or more pessimistic?
4: Well, this is a very difficult time in general. We've had um, an administration that is actively hostile uh, to the Affordable Care Act, to Medicaid. Because of the power the administration has, its capacity to provide waivers of various kinds, its, its ability to, for example, withdraw support from the marketing of, of plans under the Affordable Care Act, it can significantly undermine how these programs work in practice. So the, the Affordable Care Act has been wounded. There's no doubt about it. It's been wounded by the repeal of the individual mandate, It's been wounded by hostile administrative measures. Um, It's been wounded by the fact that 19 states have not carried out the Medicaid expansion. How this will all play out over the next couple of years is still unclear. Uh, I think there are tremendous risks that at least in some states, there's going to be significant problems with uh, the way the marketplaces work. And that may significantly damage the reputation of the Affordable Care Act and of health care reform generally. So that certainly is something to worry about. On the other hand, what we have also seen is that people have risen in defense of these reforms. We heard today about the dramatic change in Louisiana brought about by the new Democratic governor who undertook a Medicaid expansion. More than 400,000 people have gotten coverage. In Louisiana, they've gone from uh, one out of four being uninsured to I believe the figure was one out of 12 being uninsured. And that governor's popularity uh, we heard today is at one of the highest levels of any governor in the country. I think that is a good example of how delivering on a promise of of, uh, affordable coverage uh, can make terrific and positive difference. So yeah, there's a lot to be worried about. Uh, there's also, I think, good grounds for belief that uh, we can we can still move ahead.
0: The debate continues. Uh, Paul Starr, thank you for being here. Thank you. Okay, we're back, and we're going to wrap things up with a segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently they think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Um, I'm going to go first this week. I have two stories. They're related. The first is a story from Mother Jones magazine called Go Fund Yourself. And its subhead kind of says it all. America's dystopian healthcare system is forcing people into a lethal popularity contest. It's about how people with good or worthy diseases or injuries can raise money from other people, while those with less sexy, usually chronic ailments, quietly go bankrupt with their health bills. Uh, The second one is an opinion piece in The New York Times called You're Sick, Whose Fault is That? Uh, It's by a doctor and policy researcher in New York named Drov Kular. He points out that previous efforts to require personal responsibility have had decidedly mixed results and can end up making health inequities worse rather than better. Uh, The two stories together are pretty thought-provoking. Margot, you're next. What's yours?
1: So I wanted to talk about a uh, Wall Street Journal investigative story from Chris Weaver and Dan Frosch that looked at – the nominee to head the Indian Health Service. So it's this guy named Robert Weaver. And these reporters went and just basically re-reported his resume and discovered that he had not graduated from college. He had not majored in college in the thing that he said he majored for. And while he claimed he had been a high-level executive at a hospital, interviews with many employees of that hospital uh turned up that he had, in fact, had a relatively low-level job, that, you know, he'd been good at his job, but he had misrepresented his degree of responsibility, Uh, then there were claims that all of the records of his employment had been destroyed in a tornado. And when the reporters contacted the Health and Human Services Department, uh, I just want to read this quote from a spokesperson. Uh, She said, any suggestion Mr. Weaver is unqualified to run IHS is a pure act of character assassination. Uh, She wouldn't comment at all on any of the things about his job that they had uncovered. And she said he provided oversight for responsibilities, including great communication, organizational skills, problem-solving skills, as well as the ability to work well with others. Okay.
2: (laughs) Sarah. So I want to recommend actually a podcast episode this week. Um, It's from this podcast called The Uncertain Hour, which Marketplace produces, and it's the first episode of their first season, it aired about a year ago, called The Magic Bureaucrat of Riverside. And if you're interested in the work requirements going into Medicaid now, this essentially tells the story of how they ended up in welfare reform, how this one experiment in California actually leads to this revolution in welfare. It's a really in-depth podcast hosted by Chrissy Clark. And she also uncovers that this, um, this magic bureaucrat, he made a CD or maybe it was a tape at the time of welfare to work songs that you get to listen to so it is both in-depth policy reporting and some fantastic mid-90s music i highly recommend the podcast episode
0: yeah i can give that one a shout out too because i've listened to most of the episodes it's sort of a a look back at at welfare reform in the mid 1990s it was it was really well done um and kind of relevant for what's going on now Joanne.
3: Oh, I have a story here um, from the New York Times, although I should note that the local Baltimore media, uh, both TV and the Baltimore Sun, had this first. But this Times story is Baltimore hospital patient discharged at bus stop, stumbling and cold. Late at night, and it's been really, really cold here in the last few weeks, um, a patient from the University of Maryland um, in town campus, their hospital medical center, was basically, it's called patient dumping, dumped alone, no coat. Hospital gown is all she was wearing and those little socky things, some um, belongings in a plastic bag. And she was just left there. She was – we don't know her condition. A passerby saw and filmed. There seems to be some mental health issues.
0: And he called an ambulance.
3: He called an ambulance. (laughs) So this hospital that had tried to get rid of her, dumping her in a bus stop late at night after midnight, ended up just getting her – having to pay for the ambulance that was going to go, bing, bring her right back. Um, One paragraph, the woman appears to have trouble keeping her balance and communicating she barely speaks during the video, which total about 10, 11 minutes, but she does scream and her breath condenses in the cold air in front of her. This is a major American city, a major university with taxpayer funding hospital center um, in a state that has done Medicaid expansion. We have the ACA. There's just no excuse. There never was an excuse, but there sure isn't an excuse now.
0: You know, we, we hear about patient dumping and, you know, as policy people we sort of talk about it. It's rare to actually, you know, see it and have somebody video it. Yeah, it's
3: and if you look at the video it's it's just there's there's no excuse. There's no
0: reason and no excuse. All right. Well, that is it for today. Thank you for listening and thank you to our guest, Paul Starr. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us too. And a reminder, next week we're doing our live taping on Thursday, January 18th at 1 p.m. here at the Kaiser Family Foundation headquarters. You can RSVP on our website, on the podcast page at khn.org. And of course, we'll also edit and post the show as usual for those who are not in D.C. Also, as usual, you can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. At
1: Sanger Katz.
0: At Sarah Cliff. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.